Welcome to the Untold Civil War Podcast. Today is a real treat because on the show we have Claire Griffin. She is a great supporter of the show and is the author of the novel, A Rebellious Woman. This is the story of the Confederate spy, Belle Boyd, who is the topic of today. Now, Claire has been so kind as to provide me with a paperback copy of the book, which she has allowed me to raffle off to my wonderful Patreon patrons. So if you are a Patreon supporter, you will automatically be entered into the drawing. If you are not, sign up using the Patreon link in the show notes. By supporting the show with a monthly subscription as low as $3 a month, you will have a shot at winning a copy of this book. Not only that, but I'm going to double down. Since I'm a big supporter of collecting Civil War relics, I'm also throwing in a Confederate bond note or coupon. So just like in World War II when the U.S. issued bonds to raise money for the war effort, so did the Confederate government. This coupon is for $4, really interesting part of Civil War history. This whole package could be yours. Sign up now on Patreon. Link in the show notes. And now, put on your disguise, peer through your field glasses, and let's spy on some untold Civil War. Today, I'm with friend and supporter of the show, Claire Griffin. We'll be discussing her book, A Rebellious Woman, The Riveting Tale of Belle Boyd. Thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate this and glad you could finally do this. Me too. So just to get started, I mean, why do you, do you find the time period of the American Civil War so interesting? Or as I like to put it, when did the Civil War bug bite you? Um, well, I've always been interested in history. Um, and it's hard for me to say um, how long I have been interested in the Civil War. Um, I like the way you asked your question about uh, why do you find Civil War and Civil War times so interesting. I'm fascinated by the fascination with Civil War history. I think that it is probably the most important event in our history as a nation. Once we were a nation, you know, I'm, I'm barring the, the, the uh, Revolutionary War. And, uh, and it seems as if it's not over, Paul. I think that when I was a girl, uh, I'm 71, so you know you get an idea how far back I go. The Civil War was taught uh, as an event that happened in the past. And I think that we're realizing now that a lot of the issues of the Civil War are not resolved. We're still working through them today. I think it astonishes me every year when I became interested in Belle Boyd and I thought, oh, another book set in the Civil War. How can the world take another book set in the Civil War? There are so many. Um, and I think the reason why year after year, publishers publish books about the Civil War is because readers are, are so endlessly fascinated. And, and also, it's a very complex time. Uh, and I think that we've begun to realize that there are a lot of ways of looking at the Civil War. We're more interested in finding about women who were active in the Civil War or writing about the Civil War from the point of view of an enslaved person. Uh, and I think we're realizing that the Civil War experience was not the same for everybody in every location, and that we can continue to learn more by looking back. Oh, absolutely. I absolutely agree with that. There's so much in studying the American Civil War. I think as we learn more about the American Civil War, we learn more about ourselves as a yeah. nation, mm -hmm. you know, and, and more understanding. What I also find interesting, I just had on the show or three gentlemen who have just made a computer game uh, based on the Civil War. None of them were born or live in the United States. 
Uh, I think <laughs> one was from Ukraine, another was from Germany, the other was from, I think, the Netherlands. And, and so it just shows you how far reaching the Civil yeah. War really is. I mean, even yeah. on the international stage, they were telling me when I asked them, like, how did you guys learn about the Civil War? And he said, oh, well, we have reenactments all the time in Germany. So oh, interesting. It, wow. it's very interesting to see how yeah. far or I guess you could say how the Civil War bug bites even people yeah. overseas. Yeah. It's funny you should mention that because I mentioned I had done uh, another. No, I'm scheduled to do. I've done a podcast. I'm scheduled to do one more. And that one is a husband and wife in Canada. So it just goes to exactly what you're saying. Oh, is this um, a Civil War Breakfast Club? I think so. It's Darren oh, yes. and I ah, yes, remember yes. her name. Starts with yeah, an M. Yeah, I, I've <laughs> had them go back and forth on uh, social media. And we've been I said, I keep saying that I'll try to have them on and maybe we can do a, a collaboration of some sort. I'm you looking know, forward things to are in the works. Yeah, too. fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. I know they do a great job as well. They do yeah. a really And great again, job. I was surprised, uh, just like you were, about finding out that this is actually uh, an, uh, a world event that is interesting to a lot of people beyond America. Another part I want to bring into this is historical fiction. I mean, how, how did you find uh, sort of that as a medium, you know, historical mm. fiction? Have you always been reading historical fiction? I have always been, in, I'm, I've always been a reader. I've always been interested in historical fiction. I think it's a great way to learn about the past. When I, when I saw that that was your question, I thought to myself, well, are you asking why I would write historical fiction as opposed to biography? And in fact, I, I really want to emphasize for listeners and, and potential readers, Bell was a real person. And that's a different kind of historical fiction. You know, you've got to stick to uh, the known facts. And I could have written a, about her in, in, in terms of a biography, but I wanted to write her whole life. Most uh, writing about Bell and She's generated quite a bit of interest over the years, including when she was a young woman during the Civil War. She was great newspaper copy and uh, because of, you know, some of the crazy things that she did. But I but as I learned more and more about her, I realized that the things that were to me most interesting about her actually happened um, in, in her later life. She's known as the young woman who ran across an active battlefield to deliver information to Stonewall Jackson and returned home with bullet holes in her petticoats. This was the story that, that uh, was all across the country because it was such an outlandish thing for anybody to do, especially a young woman, especially in that time period. So that's where, when she sort of grabbed national attention, but there were many things that she did throughout her life that were considered to be scandalous because they were things that women simply did not do. So I wanted to write about her whole life. And that meant I wanted to be able to skip any of the boring parts. There weren't that many boring parts in the case of Belle. Her whole life was one, one event after another. But I didn't want, I wanted to be able to take a little bit of artistic license. Um, I was going to have to be doing some inventing. My sister happens to be a PhD historian. And I know what the levels are for, for that kind of scholarship. I didn't want to get bogged down in footnotes. Um, I wanted to be able to tell a really good story. Love Civil War history, but can't find a way to fit it into regular conversation? 
Civil War relics are that conversation piece you need in your home. Picture it. You invite your friends over, and on display you have a CDV of a Yankee soldier. And your friends ask you, what is that? What a great segue into talking about your passion for the Civil War. Works for me, and I get my CDVs from the Excelsior Brigade. They have many ID'd, thoroughly researched Civil War CDVs for your choosing. So check out their link in the show notes. And I think one of the advantages you have with historical fiction is kind of what you mentioned about the PhD is sometimes when people write PhDs and these long theses, they're, they're writing for the professor across the hall rather yes. than the average person. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so sometimes historical fiction is a great way to get a story out to the masses, if you will, to people Absolutely. who you know, they don't want to necessarily get bogged down in the nitty gritty of footnotes and primary sources and whatnot, but they want to hear the story and they want to learn more. And it's yeah. a great yeah. way to get started or introduce the story. Yeah. yeah. Um, But you've already started telling us a little bit about uh, this incredible woman's life. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, espionage and who exactly Belle Boyd was for those of us who might not know who she was? Okay. Okay. I'm happy to do that. So at the time that I, here's how I discovered Belle Boyd. I was actually writing for uh, young adults. I'm not a trained writer. I wasn't even an English major. I was actually an anthropology major, which I think helps me a lot in my writing because it gets you thinking about different times and places and context and, and so forth. Anyway, so before you attended this workshop, your assignment was to have done research and discovered a little known person from your neck of the woods. At the time, I was living in Washington, D.C. My husband works at, worked at National Geographic. So I was in Washington, D.C., and the town that Bell is from, Martinsburg, is about 50 or 60 miles from Martinsburg. And I discovered her. I read the story about her running across the battlefield to deliver information and some of the other things that she had done. And I thought to myself, even if she lived 500 miles from me, I wouldn't want to write about this person because she is so interesting. So that's how I I found out about her. And um, she is, she's fairly well known. She's better known in the South than she is in the North. I think for a period of time, she was taught in um, like fifth grade history and Virginia public schools. Some of the things she did seem a little outrageous to us. And at the time, they were not so outrageous. Stonewall Jackson was active in the Shenandoah Valley, where there were really, really a lot of important battles. And it was partly because he was strategically located um, in in the Shenandoah Valley, which was kind of a breadbasket for that part of the country. A lot of food was produced there. There were railroad lines so that it was easy to move, you know, troops around. And it was uh, Bell Boyd's town of Martinsburg, which was at the top of the Shenandoah Valley, was 20 miles from the Pennsylvania border. It was 50 miles from Washington, D.C., which once war was declared, if you were a Southerner, was the capital of an enemy state. It was also close to Maryland, which tried to remain neutral, but, you know, was not allowed to. The federal troops took over. So it was a very strategic location. And um, there were battles fought there all the time. Bell's town of Martinsburg changed hands 37 times in the Civil War. And a little further south, the sound of Winchester, which was even more important uh, strategically, once changed hands seven times in one day. So there was uh, action going on there all the time. 
And Stonewall Jackson was from that area. You know, he was kind of a mountain boy. That that part of um, that's the part of Virginia that became West Virginia, and it's it's quite rugged. And and he decided that he was going to use use the terrain. He was going to try to do these sneak attacks where nobody knew who was there. He would come, he would attack, and then that his his soldiers would disappear. But in order to do that, he needed information about where other armies were, and often there would be three or four Union generals with their own little army in pretty much the same area, never really very coordinated. And so Jackson sort of put the word out that he was interested in civilians gathering information for him so that it was fairly common for if a, an army was marching into town because another army had left, the matrons of the town would stand on their porches and they would count numbers of soldiers. They would count how many cannon. They would count how many horses. They would take note of whether or not the soldiers had shoes or looked hungry. You know, they would try to assess the the condition of the armies in the area. And then they would, you know, load up their carriage with a couple bushels of apples and go to the nearest Confederate camp. And along with the apples, they would deliver information. So that, that I was kind of, that was one of the very surprising things that I learned was how much, and maybe it's because it was a civil conflict, but how much civilians were involved in, you know, trying to help whatever side it was they they wanted to to, to win. Belle was unusual in, in that, in, in her level of involvement. You know, she did not just deliver information. She actually carried messages between commanders so that they could coordinate their uh, movements. So she was serving at a higher level in terms of delivering information. What I find really interesting, a couple of things you mentioned there, when you talk about these towns that were captured and recaptured multiple times, I think that's a big point. If you think of the United States, we have this thing that has always worked out in our favor, the fact that we have this giant ocean between us and other nations. <laughs> You and so, you know, you know, when you think of like World War Two and, uh, you know, World War One and these bigger conflicts, you can walk through Paris and see the remnants of, you know, those wars. We don't have that. Not nope. as close. You know, for us, it was the Civil War. You know, that yeah, was yeah. when you could kind of draw parallels. The Civil yeah. War is the you know, you can walk through Gettysburg and see, you know, where a cannonball went through a building or something. Right, right. So that's why we're so attached, I think, for sure. I think sport. you're right, yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is how, just to clarify for people, up until this time, I guess there was no formal, we didn't have like a CIA, right? There was no, no formal no, intelligence there was nothing gathering, like that. right? It was nothing so, like that, yeah. So you really did rely on, like you said, civilians basically standing up and, and doing this. And that's exactly. <laughs> that's an interesting, that's very interesting, actually. Yeah, yeah. There was photography during the Civil War. And in fact, we can talk about that later when we talk about images of Bell that have survived um, over the years. But a, a publication like Harper's Weekly did not have, and you probably know this, um, you know, because you, you know so much about the Civil War, but they would send out um, artists who would, who would sketch battles um, and so forth. And there is a wonderful illustration in Harper's. I, I came across it in, in the Martinsburg Public Library, and it is a sketch of women dressed the way Belt is dressed, you know, long, you know, full skirts, it, 
pretty hard to move around in. With the help of, of enslaved people, they are ripping up the planks on a bridge to prevent whatever army it was that was outside of town coming into town. So you actually had women who were involved to the uh, you know, point of um, you know, helping tear up a bridge or often nursing soldiers that had been wounded. Some of those, Belle did serve in a Civil War hospital for um, about six weeks before she died, not died, sort of collapsed with exhaustion. It's kind of, I guess you could think of it as like the, the, the people in the French resistance. You know, they were, they were involved in all kinds of levels of, of activities, you know, sabotage and nursing and, and information and so forth. You know, I love that. I think this is a great segue because you bring that up and everything you just mentioned definitely does not go with uh, the etiquette rules for ladies back then. And I love how you open up your book with these rules. I don't know if you want to read the whole thing, but uh, could you mention some of uh, well, some of the really, rules? It's really funny, Paul, because yeah. I um I have I have the page marked uh, because you have to you have to hear the rules in order oh, to yeah. sort of yeah. get it. And uh, I very deliberately wanted to start the book with a sample of etiquette rules, because if you're not a student of history, you know, if you're a young person that maybe hasn't read a lot of historical fiction, you know, you think that, uh, you know, if you're, if, you're, if you're a college student, you know, on a campus where you actually are able to go to class in your flannel pajamas, I mean, you don't understand <laughs> what the rules were for how you presented yourself in public. So I'll just, I'll just read like the first four. And I gleaned these from numerous etiquette books that I looked at. They were, they were quite repetitious, of course, a lot of overlap. But some of these books, Paul, were, you know, they were like 350 pages long. You know, there was etiquette for every situation. If, if you went visiting, there was etiquette for the hostess. There was etiquette for the guest. I mean, everybody was, um, was limited by, um, by the rules. Okay, so this is etiquette rules for ladies, mid-1800s America. Do not sit with your legs crossed at the knees or ankles. I'm sitting with my legs crossed right now. And I had a knee operation three weeks ago. So it lets you know how, how much I, I am sitting in this position. It feels so natural. Your feet should always rest flat on the floor. Who knows why? Do not lean back in your chair. Your posture must be erect at all times. Do not move your hands while seated. Unless you are sewing or knitting, your hands should rest quietly in your lap. I mean, imagine that. Imagine just sitting with your feet on the floor and a straight back and your hands still in your lap. You couldn't do that for more than two or three minutes before you would start to get very restless. Here's, here's a good one. Do not run in public. You must also avoid walking quickly, swinging your arms, singing, whistling, laughing, speaking in a loud voice, or calling to someone on the other side of the street. Do not raise your voice in conversation. Also, do not speak quickly, gesture, shrug your shoulders, or roll your eyes. This is at the point at which I begin to roll my eyes, right? And it just goes on and on. I mean, I, I have two pages here. As I said, some of these books are over 300 pages long. They, they tell you how if you go riding, 
which side of the gentleman the woman should be on so that he can see her beautiful riding skirt. And of course, all the women are riding side saddle and they've all got their waists in, in these corsets. So that was a good way to make sure that a woman could never ride better than a man because she could barely breathe while she was on the back of a horse. Belle was known as being um, an astonishingly good horsewoman. And one of the many things that she did that scandalized people was that when she felt like it, she would ride astride rather than um, sitting side saddle. Believe me, that was not done for a woman's safety because it is much the most dangerous way to ride, just sort of perched on one side of a horse. Um, but, um, but she was a very accomplished horsewoman. And that was one of the ways that she got around the countryside and delivered information. You know, Belle Boyd must have used multiple maps to navigate the back roads of Virginia. Who knows how accurate those maps were? But lucky for you, Civil War Trails has mapped out those untold Civil War sites for you so that your next Civil War outing will be one that is easy to plan. Check out their link in the show notes below. I mean, we sort of talked about this a little bit, how Bell Boyd really pushes the boundaries on a lot of these rules, right? You uh, rules that you know I can't even keep track of. Do we know how people felt about that? I mean, what was the reaction? There must have been something, right? Do we did people <laughs> document this? It's very funny. In broad terms, once her activities became something that was written about in newspapers, the people, if you were a Southerner, you regarded her as, you know, um, a daring, darling, brave girl who was supporting the Confederate cause. If you were a Northerner, you condemned her completely. And uh, there were no libel laws for newspapers in those days. So there is an article it was actually written after she delivered the information in uh, Front Royal that refers to her as a prostitute, you know, pretty strong language. Um, and there was no recourse. I mean, she was not, she, she was a terrible flirt. Men adored her. She was not pretty, which you can even tell from the cover picture. She had a pretty prominent nose, but she had gorgeous chestnut hair. Um, but the thing that made men flocked to her like a moth to a candle was she had a killer figure. And it's funny to read these um, sort of references to a woman's body without, you know, in Victorian language, they couldn't even use the word body, but they might say a fine figure of a woman or something like that. But you look at her and, you know, she was pretty statuesque. She had a tiny waist, she had a pretty impressive chest, and she was very flirtatious. She broke the bounds of propriety in terms of how she behaved around men. She did laugh. She did roll her eyes. She would occasionally reach over and she might, you know, touch a man's arm uh, while she was talking to him or tap his arm with her fan or something like that. You know, we don't think of these as being, you know, transgressions, but back in the day, it was, it was regarded as, um, uh, you know, uh, well, here's another story. A young woman named Lucy Buck, who lived in the same town as Belle, and obviously did not get the same kind of attention from men as Belle did, 
once referred to Belle as the fastest girl in Virginia. And it was because of this kind of behavior. She never quite crossed the line, but she got damn close. Uh, Men thought this was exciting. They'd never meet anybody like her. And the women, of course, were, uh, you know, they were scandalized. Wow. I mean, I was about to say, she probably wasn't very popular with other women in the area. Oh, absolutely not. No, absolutely not. And she she didn't, she didn't care. She didn't want to be. Yeah. Well, one thing I was going to ask is, you know, with all these stories, I mean, where do you find the research for this? How did how did you do the research for this book? She she wrote a memoir when she was all of 20 years old. And it's mentioned in the book because she, you know, she had several unhappy marriages and she spent a lot of time not being married, which, again, was breaking a rule. I mean, a woman was always supposed to be under some man's control, you know, her father, her husband. If her husband died or if she never married a brother, but Belle um, just sort of, you know, weaseled her way uh, through all of that. And so she, uh, there were times when she had to support herself. And the first thing that she did was uh, she had already had one failed marriage. She had had a child and she wrote a memoir uh, about her civil war adventures. So that's the first place you would go to for information. Now, Belle was a pretty self-serving person. She liked to be the center of attention, but and she wanted people to be interested in what she did, but she didn't want, want people to condemn what she did. And so she was obviously going to present herself in the best possible light. She also was not introspective. She was a woman of action. And so she was not about to give reasons for doing things. I think a lot of the things she did she didn't know the reason. She just was an impulsive person. She just she just acted. But that was certainly one source of information. Because I was living fairly close to Martinsburg, I began to take regular trips out there. And the Berkeley County, there's a Bell Boyd house there. Um, it's the house that uh, where her father's store was. Um, and I actually have scenes that are set in, in that house and, and on that front porch when they burn the railroad depot. And so, you know, Bell was, you you know, Bell was was doing whatever Bell was doing in you know in these places, and she um, was breaking all the rules. In the in the archives, there is um, a lot of information about Bell. Um, some letters, uh, mostly newspaper clippings. I found there the piece of paper that accompanied her when she was sent to federal prison for the first time, and also. There's a very sad part of the story when her second husband takes her out to California and she has a nervous breakdown and she um, and she actually spends a period of time in an in an insane asylum in Stockton, California. And I found I didn't find. Well, I mean, it was it was there for me to discover. But in the papers were the notes that the doctor had taken on um, her condition when she was checked into to the hospital. And this is a good place for me to, to tell you and anybody who's listening, I did 17 years of research on this book. Now, I, I did write another book at the same time. So in, in, in two years, in 17 years, I produced two books and I did all the research for, you know, for Bell, Bell Boyd. And so there's a great deal of research that when you're a historical fiction writer that never really makes it into the book. It's kind of background material in your mind. It helps you write real, more realistic scenes, but you're not going to describe everything about how people were dressed because it would slow the story down and people would get bored. So 
a lot of my research is on my website and I have pictures, I have documents. One of the interesting parts of the story is that Belle has a very close relationship with an enslaved woman who worked for her for decades. Belle taught Eliza how to read. They remained close and corresponded until Belle died in 1900. So they were friends uh, for decades or close for decades. You know, it's a complicated relationship. But those were some of the things that I, you know, wanted to include in in the story. Belle's relationship with this, this enslaved woman and in my website, it was impossible to find information about Eliza. Her name was Eliza Corsi Hopewell. It was impossible to find information about her prior to emancipation. Of course, she was a slave. They were property. Nothing about them was recorded. But once emancipation happened, the first census records after the Civil War, it was 1870 because they're done every 10 years, suddenly Eliza and her family begin to appear in the census records. And, and that is on my website. And it's really interesting. You know, there's not, there's only a, a, you know, one line per family, but we know that she lived with her husband, Sam and her daughter, Lee Laura and her son, John, and that her husband worked as a barber and that she was a mostly a housewife, but sometimes worked as a midwife in the town and that the, um, they didn't own their house. All of this is, you know, in the census records that they didn't own their house, but that the value of their personal property was $150, which back in 1870, you know, meant that you were living a fairly comfortable life. Uh, So that was one of the aspects of the story that I thought was so interesting was to find out about this enslaved woman whose family really prospered after Civil War, after the Civil War, when they were able to use their talents, use their hard work, use their energy and actually keep the money that they earned. They did they did pretty well for themselves. So that I think is an interesting part of the story. Oh, absolutely. Also kind of interesting to mention that when uh, Bell Boyd went to this asylum, there was no doctor patient confidentiality. I guess they could just put it in the newspapers. Her, uh... Well, no, it was never in the news. Well, I, there was some reference to it. In oh, the there was reference to. Okay. Yeah, but but the um, the the paper that I'm talking about that I found was actually um, from the medical records of the, oh, okay. of the asylum. No, it was okay, not understood. published. Okay, it I was, was gonna say I thought that's kind of strange, no? But you know, no. then again, you know, uh, there's a lot of strange things going on back then. And, and, uh, and, and it was surprising how um, progressive, you know, we have these horrible images of what um, insane asylums were like, and many of them were, but in fact, California was progressive even back then. Uh, a lot of people were um, going a little crazy because of the gold rush, you know, they had left their families, you know, spent their last penny, gone out expecting to strike it rich, and they didn't, and a lot of them, you know, had problems with alcohol and everything else, so they started uh, putting... They, they started erecting these asylums that were actually pretty effective in getting a lot of people back on their feet. Well, it kind of reminds me, I think it was in San Francisco, right? Um, Emperor Norton. I don't know if you know heard about that story about a gentleman who, who went bankrupt and then declared himself self-emperor of the United States. <laughs> and uh, it, it's just interesting because uh, they actually, I, they, I don't think he went to an asylum, but you know, he could have. Guard would parade for him in the city, like they just everyone knew him, and he he was homeless, but like people a local character, huh? Yeah, a local character, you know. So I guess that yeah, back funny. then a lot of people were going through a lot of 
tough times back there. And it's interesting that, you know, even then they still try to take care of people, you know, yeah. that's, that's a good thing, but, but um, bring us back to Bell Boyd, of course, you know, the, the main point of the uh, interview here, you, you just mentioned all this research that you've done and how even some of the research, you know, you can't put it all in the book. Uh, right. You talked about setting the scene on the actual, uh, you know, property, right? Some, some of the mm-hmm. scenes taking place. So where is that line? Where is that line where you have, where you had to take a little bit of artistic license versus the history? Like, where did you draw you, the line there? I mean, I guess it's different for everybody. And, and I don't want to present myself as an authority on Civil War history because I'm definitely not. I mean, I was, like I say, I spent years and years doing research um, and, and I did the research necessary for writing the book. You you stick to the known facts as much as you can. Sometimes when you read different versions of an event, as I said, the newspapers were not always sort of accurate as you might like them to be. If you read different newspaper versions of the same event, you can you can sort of come up with what seems to be consensus about what happened. You know, you'd sort of discount anything that happened that is kind of on the fringes and seems a little outrageous but you go for what what is mostly agreed upon as what probably happened there's always a certain amount of guesswork involved i'll tell you the things that were absolutely invented the letters between bell and eliza that i thought were really important in telling the story i wanted I wanted the point of view of an enslaved person living through the Civil War, you know, what that was like, and the fact that they continued to write, you know, until Bell's death, but the letters themselves no longer exist. And so those letters are are me. Another thing that is me is conversations. You don't know what people said. Uh, You know what they might have said uh, or what they're, you know, they were likely to have said. The one thing in the book that is that I really uh, had a hard time deciding whether or not I was going to include it. And I did. And now I kind of regret it. There's the scene in the book where Eliza threatens to tell Belle's mother that she's doing this spying. And Belle loves thinking of herself as a spy, you know, traveling here, traveling there, carrying messages and so forth. Her life has suddenly gotten so exciting uh, and she craves excitement. And so she says to Eliza, if you tell my mother, I will sell your family. I made that up. There is no evidence whatsoever that that ever happened. And I put it in the story deliberately. You know, I I put it in the story because it was a way of Belle uh, expressing just how strongly she felt about being able to continue her, you know, activities. But, But I also wanted to let the reader understand that I was not trying to let Belle off easily as an enslaver. I wanted people to understand that Belle had this power. If she chose to, she could have sold Eliza or sold members of her family. You know, she never did. And as far as I know, she never threatened to, and, and, and she never would have done it because uh, she and Eliza were so close. But I, you know, I put it in the book and, and now I kind of regret it because it's one of the things that people get, have a very strong reaction to. And then I have to explain, well, you know, that was me, you know, I, I, I put that in there that, that never really happened. So, you know, you make these decisions and, and you try to uh, make the best decisions you can for the purposes of telling the story, the way you think it ought to be told. Well, I I think there was reasoning, right? There was a lot of reasoning in putting that scene in there. There was. You know, it's not like you were just throwing something in there without some background knowledge or 
you know, without without pushing forward the storyline or better understanding yeah. the storyline, right? Yeah. But uh, one thing I was going to mention as we talk about the research that you did, there's a very neat discovery that we went back and forth about uh, in regards to the image in, used oh, in yeah. the book, right? Could you talk <laughs> a little bit about that? And real quick, I have to say it, since we're talking about Civil War photography, one of my sponsors is Military Images Magazine. There's a lot of really cool things that you can discover in Civil War portrait photography. And one of the great things is that Military Images uh, really does explore that. So if any of my listeners are not subscribers to the magazine, definitely recommend to go check them out. What did you discover in this image? Well, um, I, I want to go back a little bit. You know, these days in the age of Google, you hear about somebody and the first thing you do is Google them and, and find out something about them and, and you Google images. You know, Bell was born in, you know, 1844 and, kind, and came of age during the Civil War. So it was the very early stages of, of photography. And yet there are a surprising number of images of her, vintage images, one of which I'm pretty sure is by Matthew Brady, um, you know, famous Civil War photographer. So one of the reasons why there's so many images is that as she went through life, she supported herself by reenacting her Civil War adventures, which she did on stage, wearing trousers, by the way. So again, this was another rule that, um, that she was breaking. And I think of her a little bit as being kind of like Kim Kardashian. She was a person who was famous for being who she was, you know, famous for being flamboyant and outrageous and wearing crazy clothes and doing crazy things. And she promoted that because it was one of the ways she could continue to sell tickets to her performances. And she was very vain, even though she was not very pretty, she did not seem to know that. And so she was always having uh, publicity pictures taken of her she had she she walked around with postcards and if she met people who recognized her she would autograph a postcard and give it to them as a souvenir so she was always publicizing herself okay so when we were discussing the image for the book i said to my publisher i i want people to understand this was a real woman these things in the book are things that this real woman really did so let's have a real image so we started you know going online and finding images that were that we could use that were in the public domain that were going to be clear enough to to make a, a a clear image for the cover and we found this picture of her wearing what is in my opinion one of the ugliest dresses that was ever made it's just it's just horrific anyway uh, but she's wearing this, you know, very elaborate gown and she is looking, let's see, she is looking over her left shoulder. When you look at the image online, she is looking over her left shoulder. Well, the publisher and I said, nice image. It's nice and clear. We like it. We want to use it, but we don't want to have her looking over her left shoulder. We want to have her looking over her right shoulder. And when we flipped the picture, we discovered that there was writing at the top. And we had always seen that writing at the top, but we never tried to read it. Well, we never tried to read it because it was backwards. And when the image was flipped, 
you saw the name Bell Boyd written at the top of the image in the photographer's handwriting with a number beside it. It must have been, you know, however many images he had in his library or something like that. That was really pretty exciting when we flipped the image and, and suddenly we went, wait, wait, you can read it. And it says, oh my God, it says Bell Boyd. So, um, so that was really fun. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. It, it really is. Um, you know, a lot of people don't realize a lot of these images were taken in, in the reverse or they had to be taken in the reverse. Mm -hmm. And that's why you see, like, if you look at a lot of soldiers uniforms, their belt buckles are backwards, you know, On the wrong US side. Will be backwards mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. um, what's also interesting is sometimes you'll see that the uh, belt buckles will be completely upside down. <laughs> and so the reasoning behind that was they decided that if they couldn't get it, the U.S. correct, because it'll be appeared backwards in the photo, oh. they said at least it'll be upside down, but it'll be correct. I, I guess that was their reasoning, but it is interesting when you flip images yeah. and you play yeah, with that. I'm, and and I, think, I think it partly has to do with the way the photographic process was in those days, because they printed right. on glass plates. And so, you know, it was easy enough to reverse um, the, the negative and end up with a, a, an opposite image. Let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor, The Badge Maker. Campaigning season is coming up and you better be ready. Untold Civil War will be out there at some events inspecting the troops and you better be wearing a core badge or an ID disc from The Badge Maker. All proudly made in the USA. Link in the show notes. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well, after all of this, what would you say is the main takeaway you'd like people to take from this story? Well, I've been I've been talking a lot about Eliza, um, the enslaved person that who was such a big part of um, Bell's life. I think and an interest and I, I mentioned that that Eliza's life really improved after uh, emancipation. Um, Bell's life was the opposite. Bell started life as a pampered debutante. And because of the way she chose to live her life outside of male control and having to be able to make her own way um, a lot of the time, her life story is, is kind of tragic. She died on the road in Wisconsin on tour, giving you know, performances um, that told about her Civil War adventures. By this time, it was 1900. People were tired of hearing about the Civil War. And so her audiences dwindled and she earned less and less money. She wasn't in good health. And yet she had no choice, but to, she had no home. Uh, she had no choice but to keep traveling and doing these performances. She was with her husband, her much, much younger husband at that stage. He was almost half her age. He was he was another actor. And that was really, I think, the only good marriage that, that she had. I think he was really devoted to her. But she died far from home, homeless, destitute. Some local women in the town took up a collection for a respectable dress for her to be buried in. And you contrast that with, with Eliza, who lived her whole life in Martinsburg, surrounded by her family, uh, a position in the town, a home, and so forth. And it's just so interesting to me that their lives were so different, you know, that Eliza started out as an enslaved person and and she prospers um you know through the um through the decades after uh, emancipation and you know bell starts out as this you know very privileged young girl who partly through her own choices um ends up far from home and and destitute and it's just to me it demonstrates that our history is a lot more complicated than we think 
you would never have expected based on what you knew about these two women at the beginning of their lives, you would not have been able to predict how their lives ended. And I think it's an important thing to remember that history is complicated. Belle was on the right side of history as far as feminism is concerned, certainly on the wrong side as far as race and, and enslavement is concerned. And yet I think it's um, I think that makes it a very interesting story. I know people after listening to this are going to want to get a copy of this book and, and read it themselves. <laughs> How can people get a copy of the book or learn okay. more about you? I'll put a link to your website in the show notes, however. So great. Okay, that. good, good. Um, so the book is available on um, Amazon. It's available online also from uh, Barnes and Noble. There is a website called bookshop.org, which is of independent booksellers for people who prefer to go that route. You, uh, you might be able to, if you like to shop at independent bookstores, get them to order it uh, for you. As far as the website, the website is easy. It's just my name with my middle initial, clairejgriffin.com. And it is full of vintage photographs and a lot of information about the lives of women. When, when we talk about being a woman in a certain time period, we never really think what it would like to be that person, to wear those dresses that weighed 10 pounds, or to be laced up into a corset that made it hard for you to breathe. And so there's a lot of information about etiquette, about clothing um, that helps you understand how most women were so passive, even though Belle chose not to go that route. So yeah, um, documents, photographs, and a lot of kind of, I think, interesting information that did not make it into the book. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening while you drove to work, ran on the treadmill, trudging along muddy Virginia roads in your brogans, or if you're an officer, complaining about those slow trudging privates from your horse. Don't forget to become a Patreon patron and get access to the upcoming raffle. Also, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Plenty of videos coming out, including a tour of the Slaughter Pen Farm and a Civil War battle fought on tabletop. Don't miss out. Thank you for listening, and I hope you tune in to the next one.